0: Hello friends, my name is Steve and welcome to the Friday Conversation, episode 85. Thank you for coming by. Hope everyone is having a fantastic week. And if you'd like to join us on any Friday Conversation, you can check out our forums at page 2 and uh, let us know you want to join us. It's a great little community there. So we're very excited to have author Josh Erickson this week. Josh, will you kick us off with introductions, please?
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm Josh Erickson. I'm the writer and narrator of the urban fantasy series ethereal earth and uh, i'm just a big fan of talking about books in general so I'm, I'm glad to be here nice
0: good to have you and paramita's up late or early i guess with us
2: uh, hello everyone uh, i'm paramita i'm a member of the page chewing forum and uh, i'm very happy to be part of this episode thank you
0: of course, glad you can make it. They know it's late for you. And Jose.
3: Yeah, hi, I'm Jose. I run the uh, Jose's Amazing Worlds uh, channel on YouTube. I can also be found lurking around pagechewin.com. And um, I'm very happy and excited to be here. So yeah. Thank you. Glad
0: you can make it. It's always great to have you. So, uh, Paramita had some some urban fantasy questions. I'll let you kick it off, Paramita.
2: Okay, thank you. You um, have the
0: best questions, uh, so I don't want to stop you.
2: No,
0: <laughs> just get out of your way. <laughs> uh,
2: Mr. Erickson, uh, I had the opportunity to look at your website and your books, and uh, I was uh, just thinking a little bit about what I what we could discuss. And uh, I wanted to ask you a little about uh, this subgenre that you chose to write in. Is it and the process of creating immersion? is it a bit different or a bit difficult from, uh, let's say secondary world, epic fantasy, where you have, uh, uh, a totally different world, which is created by the author and they can do what they want. Whereas with, uh, urban fantasy, especially if it's in a real city setting, uh, there might be certain restrictions. So just, just your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, no, you're exactly right. But, um, I think there are pros and cons to both. Um, so in a secondary world, you're doing all of the world building on your own. You know, when, when you go into a a pure fantasy, like an epic fantasy book, um you're brand new to the world, whereas in urban fantasy you have a lot of uh, groundwork already laid for you um so it 's a little bit lazy in that respect, but then you're also <laughs> then you're also playing with all the real world restrictions too you know it's one of the big things that you run into uh, in urban fantasy that wasn 't um, such a big problem like 15, 20 years ago is that everybody has a cell phone now. And so a lot of the plot contrivances that you used to be able to get away with, uh, you can't anymore because everybody has a map, a computer in their pocket that they can find the answer to everything instantly. And you have to deal with that in, in your story in a believable way. You know, you can't always break the cell phone or, or have no signal. It, you, you have to work that in. So um, I think there are pros and cons to both. I love both genres. I just, for whatever reason this story fell into a uh, urban setting for me when it popped into my head.
0: I think that's the same problem that horror movies have as the cell phone. Yeah. They have to somehow make it so they don't have a signal or it gets broken or mm-hmm. gets lost. It's they can't get lost in the woods anymore. They everyone has a phone to
1: yeah. call for help. Nothing's scary when you can call an Uber within five seconds and just get away from wherever you are. So you, you have to you have to get rid of some of those modern conveniences. Um, Definitely. Yeah, because I've not.
3: Did, oh, sorry, Paramita, go ahead.
2: Sorry, um, go ahead. I wanted. I was. Uh, I'm not very well read in urban fantasy, but uh, I was thinking a bit about the settings of some of the popular series. For example, Rivers of London by uh, Ben Aronovich, or the Dresden Files, for example, which is set in Chicago. Um. Wow. And lots of other. So uh, one thing I was thinking about is a lot of these city settings, they tend to be uh, multicultural setting. Uh, for example, uh, London, of course, is a melting pot of cultures. And then even Chicago, I mean, the United States in general is a melting pot of cultures. Uh, do you think that that's a deliberate authorial choice? Because when they have to introduce the mythological creatures, for example, it sort of makes a uh, more sense in that there are people from different places and cultures and their beliefs and so there's so sort of this american gods neil gaiman idea that their uh, myths and their uh, beliefs traveled with them and so it is uh, not immersion breaking to have those mythological creatures residing for example uh, just wanted to ask your thoughts on that
1: yeah i love that i love that question because um, I was reading American Gods when the idea for this series uh, came into my head, mm-hmm. and so one of the central conceits uh, of my series is that um, all the all the myths and legends that are in the world are actually from um, human belief. You know, they're not they're not really naturally occurring. Um, there's this kind of spirit. Uh, um, uh, kind of a a stem cell like uh entity called an umbra uh that can take on the beliefs and soaks up those um those myths and legends and things and then becomes that uh and then they manifest in the world that way and um so i love doing a lot of the research on um the actual myths and not not just the comic book versions but like the real uh things in the world and and some of the ways they interact with the different cultures and um and then injecting little fun tidbits in the books for for the people who either already know that or or care enough to go look it up after the fact um sometimes it's just a throwaway joke and sometimes it's something really core to the story but um, I think that's one of the really great things about urban fantasy is that um, you can do that and you can not only draw from all that, but then you can also introduce people um, to some of these other uh, cultural touchstones and, and these like rich historical um, uh, backgrounds that they may not have otherwise been introduced to. And then they get, I, I, have, I have one character that's a pish taco, uh, that's a South American um, uh, legend, and uh, one of my first readers came back to me and said, "I had had never heard of that." And then I went and fell down a rabbit hole when I went to find out what that <laughs> was, and so it's it's really neat that you get to do that and kind of uh, introduce people and then pay a little bit of honor to some of those legends too.
3: Um, so really sorry, so I haven't. <laughs> read your books. I'm browsing through your website. You live in Nebraska. Where, where is your series set? Is it?
1: Yeah, it's actually set... In your
3: hometown? Somewhere that you yeah, know Yeah, well? it's
1: actually set in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is the capital of Nebraska. Hmm. It's not... I mean, it is technically urban. Um, but <laughs> but the <laughs> the first book is, is in Lincoln. Um, and it uh, it's like a hundred and... 50,000 people-ish. Um, so it's nothing like Chicago or London.
3: No, but... So, like... Because my line of questioning was more like... Was that a conscious decision? Because, like, I've I've written some short stories myself. Mm-hmm. And I base them in my hometown. Yeah. Because if I'm going to write about a town... Like, I really want to know full well that you can go down yeah. that road... And that you can take a left there... And, or, or you cannot take a right in that road. Because... If someone from Lincoln was to read that mm-hmm. book, and you, you know, came up with yeah. like a wrong location or a sort of, it's always that fear that someone local may trip you up and catch you up. Yep, out, <laughs>
1: exactly. I know. There's. I always used to laugh at the authors who took trips to Rome or whatever to, you know, to to do research for their book, quote unquote. Uh, but you really do need that. You need the verisimilitude of of knowing the real place. And so um, my second book starts to become more globe trotting. um, And so I had to devote, you know, locations in China and things like that. I did devote a lot of time Mm. just to reading books and doing research on the area so that, yeah, when I when I said they take a left down this street, uh, that street exists and that hospital is is where I say it is.
0: Sounds like a lot to, especially for a town that you're not too familiar with. there would be a lot of—is it like Google Maps, or what? Do you, what would you use to?
1: A, a little bit of everything, you know. Yeah, Google Maps and um, a, a lot of like TripAdvisor things. You know, you hmm. can you can get a lot of on-site feedback from different locations and, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, just any any way you can. I always joke that um, my Google search. Uh, algorithm is just absolutely ruined. Google has no idea who I am. As far as they know, I'm in the market <laughs> to buy a yacht, and I'm an international businessman, and I'm interested in swords <laughs> and the weight of a human head, you know.
0: So they're watching you. Yeah, in the, in the words, right? My FBI
1: yeah. agent is busy. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh. I was going to ask something. Uh, So you said you're a mythology nerd. Is that fair too?
1: Absolutely, yeah.
2: And you love to read books. So I want to ask uh, maybe two questions if uh, the other panelists don't mind. One is, which I ask everyone, uh, you can ask the other panelists some favorite books of yours, if you please share with us. And the second one is, uh, what was that moment for you when you realized that you have a story to tell that it's not, it cannot just be reading anymore. It's time to get writing your own story for yeah. us to read.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, you always have that moment. Um, my favorite books actually I have a shelf of them right behind me of, of my, my favorites and it's American gods and, um, mm-hmm uh that you know that's the one that inspired my series and we've got tolkien back there and george r, r. martin and um edgar allan poe and Kelly gibran and you know just a, a lot of different uh influences that are either i like it for the prose or i like it for the story um but you know picking just picking just one is impossible for a a, a true book lover you know um but I think for me, the moment that I uh, realized that I wanted to tell a story was um, when I read a really bad one. Um, hmm. It it wasn't... I, you know, I was reading American Gods, um, and then I moved on to something else. I won't, you know, out, out the book. Uh, but I was reading it, and I just absolutely couldn't understand. It was published by a, a traditional publisher, and it had tons of good reviews and it just absolutely fell flat for me and there were every time every you know chapter i would find five or six things that i would have done differently and eventually i said Mm -hmm. well then if you're so good then do it if you think you know so much so i had to you know prove to myself that i wasn't just you know making stuff up and then i got carried (laughs) away and wrote five books so
3: So, because by the sounds of it, obviously you mentioned it a couple of times, American gods. I mean, I think the idea behind it was quite striking, and I think quite, quite significant. I mean, the underpinning that sort of believes just give power to the gods is an old one, and it's something that he shared with Terry Pratchett and other people have um, sort of replicated over, over time but that, that notion of people bringing their beliefs with them and making them happen is that something that you've also incorporated into your into your series
1: yeah yeah that's um, i you know there it, nothing's ever nothing's ever new it's just a reworked version of of something that inspired you know from the previous generation so yeah i i definitely took that concept and kind of made it my own and turned it into a another thing um but that was that was powerful to me that um i i grew up thinking of faith as kind of this ephemeral thing that was just it was an obligation not it didn't really have any inherent power um and so I love the idea of um, faith and belief uh, having this passive, very tangible power that could go on to feed these incredible things um, that we, you know, may not even know exist in the background. It kind of, um, I, I like the idea that there's a spark of creation in everybody, and that uh, we don't necessarily know how much our passion. And um, excitement for things is going on to, to help bring them into the world.
3: Yeah, and um, so I just go, like, my mind goes, so there's two things. Like, are you familiar with the Department of Truth comic book series?
1: No, no.
3: Which is, it's, it's, again, it's a, like an ongoing series, but it's based on the idea that, yeah, that belief can shape mm. reality. So this is a department of truth in the United States, like the sort of secret branch of government that shapes reality based on and by disseminating misinformation, they get people to believe in oh. conspiracy theories and that becomes reality. So I thought considering what yeah. you're talking about are you about, sure that's a
1: comic book series uh, and not like uh, just actual fact? That seems like seems like a real thing that exists. I mean I've got,
3: I, it's on that bookshelf over there so I'm pretty certain (laughs) that that's you know it's a comic book series but um, yeah and also like uh, because again back to that um, American ghost, like Neil Gaiman something that uh, struck struck me was that he said that the US has got the geography and Europe has got Mm -hmm. the history Mm -hmm. and obviously me being European like I I was born and raised in a Town with Roman architecture. There's still a Roman bridge that you can walk over, and we've got you know Arab castles from the Muslim invasions in the 700s and stuff like that. So, as an American, when you're approaching that history, which is so, I mean, I mean, what's your impression when you, you know when you look at Europe or you look at China when you're talking about your book and how do you shape that? How, how do you cope? Yeah, with
1: that? I think. W- I mean, I don't want to speak for all Americans, but I think we all kind of a, a, approach uh, any place with that much history with kind of a reverence and an awe. Um, and so we ascribe a certain level of, uh, you know, magic to it. Um, I mean, I, I have a hard time saying goodbye to my old wallet because it's been in my pocket for so <laughs> long. I, you know, <laughs> let alone something that's from a thousand years ago. So it it's i think americans especially and um i know it's not just america but we're we're a very disposable culture um we think places that have 20 years of history are really really old um (laughs) you know you'll see stores here that says established 2001 like that's something impressive (laughs) uh whereas you guys have a pub that was open like at the dawn of time you know so (laughs) it's totally different and i think we do have a tendency uh in america to give kind of a a magical aura to anything um from cultures that are older than ours which is just about every culture so we've got a lot to choose from let
3: me just think like the concept of a castle like surely there's no castles in in the Uh, u.s right
1: just styrofoam ones or bouncy ones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can get inflatable castles right now if you want. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah,
1: yeah, interesting.
3: Yeah,
0: I don't think there is, there are any castles.
1: I think there's some. There's one in Lincoln that they call a castle. I mean, I suppose you could call it a castle. I think they imported it. It's a it. big house. It's yeah, big it's house. just a very big stone <laughs> house. But there was never a moat around it, so I don't think it qualifies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah that's that's something that i'd really like to visit as like a, a castle a castle it mm. seems almost like a like a, they don't really exist like it's so it sounds wild
1: yeah yeah no kidding
0: is that in your google history too castles
1: oh i'm sure if if it isn't <laughs> it will be i'm <laughs> i i have uh, uh several fl- friends we play D and um and so occasionally i do have to look up the correct term you know for a part of a castle because i will get called on it if i call a you know a a bailiwick uh something else wrong Hmm. so Hmm. do readers call you out you know i think that's part of the good thing about urban fantasy is um a lot of it they either kind of take your word for it um or if I do get called out on something, it'll be something modern. I had, um, a guy, very nice reader, um, ask me to please stop calling, uh, the magazines for guns clips because it was a different thing. Uh, and he said, just so you know, it's any gun people are going to know that. And so I changed it from now on because I had no idea. Um, hmm. so Things like that I do get corrections on, but it's always from people who have read the books and really love them, and so it's always coming from a good place. Yes, sorry, I'm sorry.
0: No, no, go ahead. Go no,
2: no, ahead. no, no. Well, no, I have a can of worms question, so I would like to wait in the backstage for a while while you ask no. your question.
0: No, go ahead. Ed, go open the can of worms
1: okay urban fantasy versus magical realism yeah that is a
2: divide? i know how do we do it and i still don't understand
1: yeah i know i kind of think of urban fantasy has to have a level of grittiness to it where magical realism is um it can it can almost be fantasy adjacent uh where it's a secondary world similar to uh, like harry potter um where there's this other thing that exists and it's just a little bit, I don't know, cleaner, shinier, I guess. Whereas urban fantasy has a little bit of dirt on it. Um, but I, I'm not totally sure that if you asked 10 people, you wouldn't get 10 completely different answers. That's just my perception of it.
2: I haven't got to 10, but I've tried, I think, like 3 or 4 and
3: <laughs> 3 yeah. or
2: 4 wildly divergent opinions I, I, know. Was, I was going to ask you what do you think about ocean, the ocean at the end of the lane which is my favorite oh. book by neil gaiman
1: yeah and
2: uh, I, I i love that book but is it urban fantasy it, it is set in the real world
1: i know i know i kept waiting it for has something
2: real element
1: yeah you know it's just i i think it's it's magically Beautiful is what it is. I kept waiting for something more incredible to happen um, to make it urban fantasy. Uh, but it's just a very pretty story. Um, yeah. And Neil Gaiman yeah. kind of gets to do whatever he wants, so he gets a pass. That's that's fine.
2: <laughs> that's, you can that's call fair. it whatever I he mean, wants. It's my, yeah. favorite, it's, it's my favorite novel by him. And the second yeah. one is Neverwhere. Oh, I yeah. I mean, that is that is definitely urban fantasy, and uh, yeah. I mean london below is probably one of my favorite worlds mm-hmm. but he announced the sequel and uh, now then he obviously he became uh very much involved in uh com- compete, com- completing uh sir pratchett's vision yeah. so i i respect that but i'm like where's my sequel
1: <laughs> yeah i know i know yeah that <laughs> ev- everything that guy does as far as i'm concerned is gold i was just talking to somebody about his short stories and i still think about some of those short stories um
2: I have not know, read the, any
1: is oh, there a particular
2: one you recommend a lot
1: um fragile things is really good there's I think there's more smoke and mirrors maybe is is another one um and then he's got quite a few others that like snow glass apples and um oh a study in emerald I think is a like a okay. a uh, sherlock you know take um but uh, smoke and mirrors and fragile, thing, uh, fragile things. I think are are my favorite. I I hope that's the <laughs> titles of them. I'm gonna get. I will get Thank called so out much. in your comments. I
3: like. I, I I don't know much about magical realism, but to my knowledge, the one author that gets assigned to that category is the Colombian writer Gabriel Garcia mm-hmm. Marquez, and what you know, Hundred Years of Solitude love in the time of the Mm -hmm. cholera and those things are to me are as as far from fantasy as as you can get it it's almost like a like a fiction Mm -hmm. with um you know with a touch of the romantic if if you want but i think um i think they're very very separate sort of genres that they're two to my mind, almost with no yeah, overlap. Yeah,
1: no, you're you're mm-hmm. probably a lot closer than I was on that, where magical realism is more... Um, urban fantasy magic is an integral part of the story, and magical realism, uh, it just kind of seasons, flavors of the story a little bit.
3: There's... Yeah, like, th- there's no magic yeah. there. There's almost this... Uh, there's uh, magic in the sense that I think the character's deep desires and hopes mm-hmm. come true, but not through the means of magic, just through sort of happy yeah, happenstance. Yeah. And what's the? I'm giving
1: j- uh, is it like water for chocolate? I'm I'm remembering 20 years ago. Um, it's the story of of yeah. uh, 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 a youngest daughter who's um, in in Mexico. It's her job to take care of her mother. Um, and she starts. Uh, she's making food, and and she starts like crying into the food, and it imbues her emotions into it. Um, and people mm. experience those emotions when they eat it. I think I'm remembering that correctly. I'm probably way off, but that, yeah, that's exactly what I think of when I think of magical realism.
3: Yeah, uh, uh, maybe something like is it Chocolat by Joanne Harris? That Harry's? could be. That could be. No, like, yeah, this this whole. Because I re- I remember more the movie sure. than the book. Yeah. But again, it's it's that sort of thing where sort of things are like happy yeah. and and things are sort of but but very grounded mm-hmm. in the real world. But yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. W- I think I think that's true.
3: With a, with with a hint of the yeah. unbelievable. Everyone is really happy and everyone is almost yeah. perfect sort of thing. Maybe I don't know. I, I agree with the you definition. there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And not only uh, so I I also noticed that you narrate your books too. Yeah. How long does it take you to narrate a book?
1: Oh man. So long. It's, (laughs) you know, when I started doing it, it was again, go back to Neil Gaiman. This will just be the Neil Gaiman show for you on this episode. (laughs) Um, I, I was listening to his stuff and I thought, well, if he can do it, maybe I can try it, you know, give it a shot. It can't be that stupid of me to try. Um, it, in retrospect, yeah, it's not a great idea. It's a pretty big gamble. Um, but it worked. but now uh, it takes you know it takes several months to write the book, um, maybe six months. They're pretty long books, 150 to two hundred thousand words. so decent, decent size. Um, and then the editing process, and then it takes another two to three months um, to record it and edit it and then do all the formatting to get it published. So it's usually a year between books. Um, and in retrospect, man, that's just a really long time. And editing waveform audio is the least amount of fun maybe I've
3: ever had. <laughs> but you have to do it. But I have to say, if you're saying one year between books, that's a pretty awesome rate. You I know, to say. I love.
1: I love people who think that th- those are my favorite types of people because that is the rate that I kind of you know I'm comfortable with but now there are people who release a book a month two books a month and it's just impossible to keep up with
3: Nah, it, nah. they've got ghostwriters they just well, have an idea and they've got a team of ghostwriters if you're doing a year between books that's awesome yeah, days. yeah that's uh, uh, th- I mean Almost to the point you're, you're bordering on the unnatural. Well,
1: it, my my last book was it, I was I started writing it um, right when COVID started, uh, and it got really dark, and and I had to rewrite the whole thing after about six months, and so that one took me about a year and a half. But I released a collection of short stories in that time, so I I, I kind of count it as a year each book because
3: I did a little half book in between, so. So, do you approach writing a bit like sort of Stephen King style, where you know he says that's his job, and he won't get out of the chair unless he's written like a thousand words a day or something like that? Do you give yourself little time? Yeah,
1: yeah, you have to. um, If if I mean, for anybody who's a procrastinator and like naturally lazy, like I am, uh, you (laughs) have to set yourself discipline goals. Otherwise, it, it won't work. Um, and I actually, that was the first book I read Stephen King's On Writing um, because it is very informal, you know, there are probably better books about the process of writing and, and how to do it and develop habits, but Stephen King's is just more of a book that's like, hey, here's my backstory and here's how I think of it hopefully it'll help you, and it's 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 a soft introduction um, and entertaining, and yeah he, he said you have to whatever your goal is 500 words 5000 words whatever you can do set it and do not get out of the chair until you're done because that's how your brain knows oh it's it's work time today hmm.
3: and because I think it's it's force of yeah. habit even if you're ri- even if you end up writing is crap yeah. and you end up discarding it or in the editing process you go this doesn't work but I think um, creativity mm-hmm can be trained yeah. as well. Like, if you force yourself to sit down every day, just out of the sheer volume mm-hmm. that you write, something will be yep. good, and, and then you can just expand on that, isn't it? Whereas if you're just sitting around waiting for mm. inspiration to hit you, that's when it takes you five years yeah, between the books.
1: absolute worst thing is a blank page. Like, they, <laughs> you know, the, the, old, uh, the old saying is, everybody's a critic, and it's totally true. Everybody is a critic, even for your own stuff. And so, um, you're a better critic than you are a writer, hundred percent of the time you are. And so if you've written something terrible, it's much easier to go back to your terrible stuff and fix it than it is to start from scratch and from, from just zero better to be at, you know, 10% good than at 0% of anything. So yeah, you're exactly right. If, if you just write even in cold blood and just get something on the page maybe tomorrow you'll come back and say wow that was garbage but you'll have something to work on you're not just staring at a white screen
3: although how hard do you find it to discard a piece of your writing yeah. Said you, you you've written yourself into yeah. a corner you are however many words or pages in how hard is it to go you know what this is just yeah. not working and rather than try to write myself mm-hmm. out of it, I should just go back. I, I mean, how so, do you deal with that? Again,
1: uh, the, the lazy procrastinator way, work smarter, not harder. Um, usually, <laughs> usually I consider those kind of a gift, like a creative gift. So um, if I have fallen into the sunk cost fallacy and I'm like, nope, keep going, I've invested too much time in this, I need to keep pushing even if it's bad, then usually what I'll do is I'll take that bad thing and I'll, I'll selectively cut out all the pieces that um, that definitely don't work, and then splice in things that make it work for the rest of the story, and then what I end up with, most of the time, it doesn't always happen, but most of the time, I end up with this really weird chapter that nobody, including me, expected to happen, because it's not linear. It happened in multiple pieces, and so the when, when you have the experience of reading it, you're like, whoa! This has taken some weird zigzags well, because it happened in zigzags. it started with two hmm. straight lines and then I pieced them together and so this scene ends up frenetic and fun and um, you know changing venues a lot and snappy dialogue because it sometimes it's a it's a Frankenstein of what I originally intended and I came out with something better in the end so but I do not recommend that's that's a That's advanced tactics. I do not recommend (laughs) start (laughs) writing that
3: way. That's bad advice. (laughs) Uh, And then, sorry, since you mentioned that, so, own up. How many times have you cracked yourself laughing with something you have written? Oh, man. I love
1: to play like the humble guy. I'm like, oh, thank you. No, thank you. But, that's part of why I love narrating it so much is I'll be in the booth and I'll I'll start laughing at a line and be like, Josh, you got it this time. That's a good one. <laughs> and if if I could I, someday, I'll probably, you know, have to take a sample of all those recorded sessions when I'm typing on the keyboard in the booth to change a joke and be like, oh, no, no, this will really get people going. Because, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and I if I'm not having fun with it, then it how do I expect anyone else to have fun with it The
0: uh, Parmita you had a question
2: I did and, and then I thought of another one <laughs> 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 okay I'll go with the first one because it was related to what uh Steve was asking about narration and mm-hmm. I was a bit embarrassed at first because it's again related to Gaiman but then you're yeah. like I love yeah. Leel Gaiman so I'm like yeah. yes okay then it's probably fine um so this is something that I heard uh, one of my favorite uh, authors Patrick Rothfuss say on a uh, stream and I agree with him. He says that there is this cadence in Neil Gaiman's prose which is just magical like he mm-hmm. just gets cadence right. Yeah. It's not it's listening to it is a beautiful experience. It really is. And uh, it it comes uh, through I'm guessing in the narration as well. I mean, I, what I do is I read the text and then I read it in my head, and I'm like, "Da da da, beautiful!" Like it came, mm-hmm. it was at a height for at the ocean of the end of the lane for me. I wanted to ask, is cadence important to you, and hmm. do you make that a part of your narration when you're narrating the books? So, is it important in writing, and also is it instrumental in your narration process?
1: Yeah, yeah, it it is because everybody um, has their own. Uh, voice right when you write, um, everybody and part part of learning how to write is finding your your voice, um, and for me it's it's inextricable from um, the way I talk naturally, the way I narrate, and so um, as I'm writing, I'm narrating it at the same time, and I hmm. don't know, but I suspect Neil Gaiman as somebody who who narrates his own. Work. I suspect he does something similar um, where he's, as he's writing it, he's imagining how he wants to narrate it. And you, I mean, you almost can't get away from that. Knowing that you're going to be in the booth uh, speaking these lines, you have to make it sound natural coming out of your mouth. If there's, uh, you know, a phrase that you would never say and you don't know how to get your mouth around, you're going to change it. Um, and that's part of making things sound natural like dialogue especially is like the bane of a lot of writers existence just getting natural flowing sounding dialogue and one of the best ways to do it is just to read it aloud to yourself whether you're going to narrate it or not um read it out loud and if it sounds weird to you it probably is weird so maybe (laughs) maybe give it a little tweak um and that's i think at least for me how you get a good rhythm and a little bit of Mm poetry and the prose so that it sounds nice and you can kind of lull people into the story and Neil Gaiman is an m- absolute master at that. I'm only ever emulating you know, a shadow of what that guy can do.
3: Yeah, I have to be honest here, I, I don't know, I may be making everyone jealous, but I had the pleasure of attending the presentation of his book on Norse oh, mythology yeah. hmm. uh, in London and he read a chapter and man that guy could read the yeah. telephone listings and it would sound yeah. awesome he just got his you know his voice and his prose and everything which is mm-hmm. fantastic like it, w- it was a shame that he only read one yeah. chapter. it's And
1: the thing is is if you look at what makes a narrator really good Neil Gaiman doesn't check really any of the boxes except having a, a pleasant voice to listen to but he just has his own brand. He has he has his own style, and it just works so well. There's it, it would be almost impossible for anybody to emulate uh, his exact style. Kind of like Stephen Fry. You know, he's another really good one that has his own brand, and nobody can duplicate him unless you know unless you're copying his voice for AI or something. I guess, but right. that's a different. That's a totally different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, I I wanted to ask something else which uh, Jose was talking about and uh, then you uh, talked about it as well, Mr. Erickson. So, first of all, a book a month, what sorcery is this? We, for some <laughs> authors, I am uh, Patrick Rothfuss, Susanna Clarke, George R.R. R. R. Martin, Neil Gaiman, reader. We do not get yeah. books and we just reread the old book. Yeah. What is this sorcery of releasing new books? I know. But, uh, to to actually ask uh, a more uh, <laughs> a more reasonable question, um, <laughs> what is that? What is that balance for you, where you know that a book is done and you are ready for to release it into the world, or whether it needs more revisions, it needs more polishing. Uh, I mean, I was always told during my, one of my studies that done is better than perfect. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who would disagree. They would say that, no, you keep revising, you keep revising, and you keep trying to reach that limit of perfection. So as an author, how, how do you tell yourself, and also maybe as a narrator, when you're in the uh, in the booth and you're doing the recordings, when do you know that it's, it's, it's time to let go and it's done?
1: Yeah, um, I think I actually have it kind of uh, I've have, I have one benefit of the uh, narrating my own books in that um, I get one more edit when I'm in the booth hmm. I can still edit things I have a keyboard and a mouse in there and a computer screen and when I when I am reading through it that's like my fifth draft you know my, my polish polish uh, and I do I edit almost every chapter I read um, but I think at least for me this is totally an opinion um at least for me the people who believe in perfection are people who will never publish a book Uh, maybe Hmm. maybe like harper lee you know people who publish one book and then that's just their masterpiece and then they're done um anybody else if you want to be a working author you have to learn how to be good with you know 95 percent or so um because that's all you're ever going to achieve. There will always be, I could go back to every one of my books and completely rewrite them from the ground up and they'd be better. But is that a good use of my time? Um, Hmm. And you have to eventually just tell yourself, I'm still having fun with this on my five millionth read through. And so that means it is fun, at least to people like me. And now I, it's time to let go. you know it's graduated high school, it's time to send it off to college and time to say goodbye. and um, it's just more of an intuition, I think. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule, but but you're, you're right. it's done is, is better than perfection as long as you know when done is.
2: Thank you so much.
3: Um, how did you go about the editing process? Have you got an editor? Have you got someone that checks over for consistency and grammar, spelling, on yeah, that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. I
1: have um, an editor uh, named Steph. She's awesome. Um, she lives in, in uh, Bristol, I think, over, over on that side of the, the pond. Um, and uh, she was actually my first review Um, I submitted books Hmm. to her to, you know, to several people and she responded and she was really great. And she was a total stranger and responded back to me and put a review on there that just was unbelievable. And it was my first review from a stranger and it was five stars and she loved it so much. And I am not ashamed to say that I cried like a little baby Uh, because you put all (laughs) this work into something and you you're in isolation. You don't know how good it is. And then a stranger tells you, Hey, it's pretty good. And that's, that's a big moment. And so then, you know, later I approached her to be a beta reader and then editor and, uh, she's awesome. Hmm. Um, but luckily I really enjoy the editing process. I love going back through and, and tweaking things and I'll, I'll do three or four drafts. Um, usually two drafts. The first draft is never fit for human consumption. You know, it's uh, nobody should see the first draft. That's one of the things I I have authors, uh, email me occasionally and say, I finished my book. What should I do now? And I say, you should get yourself a pizza and, uh, you know, whatever (laughs) beverage you want and then close your door again and do another draft. And the tendency is to want to get it out. Because you're done, and it's so exciting. but um, the first draft is never. It is never your best work. And so the second draft yeah, no, is after after the second draft is when I send it to my editor. and then um, I do a third draft to make it nice and address her feedback, and then a polish. And then like I said, usually in the booth, I have that fifth extra, you know, wax polish to get it really shiny. And then once it's done, um, I've recorded it, and it is a big hassle to go back and re-record it. So, uh, it's done. I don't, I don't care if I want to change something. It's over.
3: Yeah, I can't remember which author it was. Someone that said that once you finish your first draft, you should stick it in a drawer and leave it there for two yeah. years, and then come back to it. Yeah, then, that's advice from
1: the from the age when writers could live in a a lighthouse on the sea coast and write one book every 10 years you know but you should you should let a <laughs> let a draft cool down a little bit absolutely yeah. you should you know take a week or two off give us some time work on something different
3: and then come back and to um, it conversations that i had with other authors of people that are sort of getting started like how did you handle manage the whole publicity mm. thing obviously you're here tonight but you know sometimes i think authors need to be backpackers yeah. you need to be willing to load your your trunk with a box of your books and go to conventions fairs and pedal your yeah. wares so to speak huh? how do you how do you put on that marketing cap on and, and get out yeah, there yeah
1: that is that is a different answer for everybody i think because there's now fortunately we live in a just a time when you have a bunch of options it used to be that conventions were the way or print ads you know were were the way and um now you have social media um tiktok is a a creature unto itself if you can get some viral Mm. tiktok you don't have to spend a dime but you have to do it every day five times a day and that's you're putting a lot of sweat equity into that um you know there's Facebook ads there's Amazon ads um, I think the most important thing is just not put all your eggs in one basket and um, say yes you know because people who ask you questions like you guys uh asked me to to be here today and anybody who asks you um, to do something are book lovers who are cool people who just want to talk about books and so say yes to that stuff because you're gonna meet mm. nice people and at, at the same time, maybe get the word out a little bit. Um, but really, the main thing is just treat it like a job. You just have to... You can't be um, too thin-skinned about it because as soon as you put your books out there and start marketing them, you're going to get bad reviews and you're you're opening yourself up to criticism. So you have to overcome... First thing is overcome that fear of, of people criticizing you. And then after that, it's just... A little of everything. Just make sure you're visible. Make sure people know your name. Reddit is great, you know.
3: But so, but have you sort of moved around conventions? Have you gone to book fairs and put up your uh, stall and your table and and been there? I've, or I've done a couple. Just sticking to social media. Yeah, for I've
1: them? I've mostly existed online um i've done a couple conventions but um the conventions are almost a a totally different animal um it conventions are a lot more about flash and like how big your banner is and are you uh wearing a cool like topical cosplay and um (laughs) you know are you approachable (laughs) and do you have cool tchotchkes sitting out on the table that people can grab um and so it's a lo- it's a big investment. You have to you have to put a lot of money and time and thought into it and planning. Um, and that's really my biggest hurdle. Is if I want to do a convention in, you know, next May, I, I need to book it today, and plan to be there and and schedule it out. And uh, I'm not good at that. That is not my strong suit. But hmm. you know, I, if I ever get popular enough and people want to invite me to conventions, I will absolutely come and do panels.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's always that. <laughs> the, um, you know, I with with reviews. It seems like everyone's, a, I mean, I don't know. It seems like everyone's a little too touchy about reviews and what the Man. different spaces are. And there's some people who think authors should never respond at all to review. I know. Uh, some people think it's okay for a positive review, but for a negative review, you shouldn't re- respond at all. What are are your thoughts on how do you handle reviews in general?
1: Yeah, I've made so many mistakes and you really don't know until you, I mean, there's no handbook really for Mm -hmm. this kind of, well, no, there probably is a handbook probably available on Amazon right now uh, for all of these (laughs) things. If you want to go look, but um, I have never read any of the handbooks. So um, I think just as a best practice um, responding to reviews in general, is not a great idea because um, places like goodreads are not for authors as much as goodreads would love for them to be they're for readers they're for uh, i mean i take off my author hat and put on my reader hat when i go to goodreads and it's for readers to talk to other readers about the books once the author gets in there um there's a weirder dynamic where people Hmm. feel bad about giving a negative review even if it's truthful or Um, you know, sometimes they want to go after an author for maybe not releasing on time or killing off a loved character, things like that. And then it just becomes this weird dynamic. And I would much rather talk to people, um, individually one-on-one. I have a, I have some Facebook ads that are doing decently well. And in those comments, that's my space And so if people leave comments, I absolutely respond to those and interact um, because that's the expectation. But if I'm going out and seeking out reviews to comment on them, it's just almost never going to work out well. Once in a while, a reader may say, thank you. That's awesome. I, I love that you responded, but nine times out of 10, that person left it for their friends not really for the author to, author to come peek over the, you know, over the fence and uh, get sad about it. I do read them. I read them all, and then I just cry privately to myself. <laughs> Those are for <laughs> me to experience alone.
0: <laughs> yeah, there, there, there must be a handbook somewhere. I, I just think if if I were an author, if someone left a negative review. I would want to know, like, okay, what 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 is it that didn't yeah. work for you? Or, or I mean, they get a little bit more, like, feedback. Yeah. But I think some people would frown upon that and be like, mm-hmm. "You need to leave the reader alone." So yeah. it's such a weird. Everyone has a different opinion on how what the interaction should or should it be.
1: Yeah. My advice to my advice to not respond. It comes more from a place of like preserving your own um, your author brand and and mm-hmm. like perception because um, no matter how well you phrase it. I mean, you could be the best writer in the world and everybody's going to take your comment just a little bit differently. Um, They read it in their own head. So if you say something like, oh, I'm so sorry it didn't work for you. Uh, You know, what could I have done better? They may read it in their head. Well, I'm so sorry it didn't work for you. What could I have done better?
3: (laughs) Yeah. And and so
1: so no matter what you do, it's not going to come off the way you intend it. And it's just better just to not. There, there are you know get beta readers, um, mm-hmm. and invite people for that kind of feedback, and then the expectation is that they will get your questions and answer them, um, and that's the space for that kind of interaction. I think.
2: I was, uh, <laughs> I was also going to make a point, Steve. That, I mean, I made a point. I made this point in another, <laughs> another Friday conversation. Uh seventy to seventy five percent of the authors that I read are dead. Yeah. And how is poor grandpa Tolkien going to respond when someone leaves a yeah. one star review for him? So
1: Boy. Why I would...
2: should why why should the alive authors get yeah. opportunity that the dead ones don't? I'm if, like if, equal opportunity for all authors. Yeah, if Tolkien does respond. Heartbeat status
1: that's 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 incredible i think goodreads would uh would welcome tolkien if he was able to respond to all his reviews
2: i mean he he has this interview uh on youtube where he's like he speaks f- uh for a little bit and then he's like i'm a meticulous kind of bloke and i'm like this is the understatement of the millennium yeah, yeah. not the century but the millennium <laughs>
0: And I also wonder about, uh, but like f- social media. I know an author who who went viral and face or on uh, TikTok, mm-hmm. and they sold a lot of books. And they were the, it was all the rage for about two weeks, and they felt really great. And they're like, "I'm gonna finish my next book that I'm working on. I want to get it out. I want to capitalize." And crickets. Yeah, I and know. Almost fell into a, a depression after that because they, it's it's so it moves so fast. That yes, you can go viral, yeah, and you can be successful. But then it you kind of come back to Earth because someone else is going viral and some someone else is the the big you know the popular book of the week or whatever so yeah how, how do you how do
1: you kind of manage that how, how would you manage that yeah that happened to me um not with tiktok but uh my last name is erickson and steven erickson is incredibly popular fantasy author <laughs> and his his is uh, nom de plume you know his is uh, uh author name That's not his real name. Um, Mine is real. I was born with it, but he spells it exactly the same way. Um, And so when I uploaded my book, this is my little first book that nobody had ever heard of. Um, I was involved in uh, uh, the self-published fantasy blog off uh, with Mark Lawrence. Mm. um, And I had a little bit of, of play with that. And a couple cool bloggers had read my book, but you know, it was nothing huge. And I uploaded my book and the algorithm saw Erickson and they were like, oh, yeah, let's pump this one to the top. And so for um, a solid month, my book was in the top five urban fantasy consistently and I had no explanation for it. And I was trying to figure out how did I do this? And, uh, you know, I thought maybe this is just what happens when you upload a book. It just becomes immediately popular and (laughs) and takes no work from you. Uh, and so I right away started to write the second book and get it out. And then slowly, but surely everybody figured out that I was not Steven Erickson's son. I'm just some other guy who has that name. And so that my sales have leveled out more to where they probably should have been. And so I had to learn how to uh, have more sustainable, um, uh, marketing practices like ads and, um, social media and, and, developing a fan base and things like that um and tiktok is just 10 times worse because it is very much flavor of the day whatever's trending and so if your book stops trending after a week um it just the algorithm just drops you and there's there's nothing that you can even do except start a new account and hope lightning strikes twice so the best thing to do is to capitalize with with paid ads and with social media and Get people while you have their attention. You know your fifteen minutes of
3: fame. But surely TikTok is not where you're going to find your audience. Yeah. The, the kind of people that will plow through a five, six, seven hundred page book one of a fantasy series are not the kind of people yeah. that are scrolling through 10 second TikToks. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got a lot of. Issues with social yeah. media and TikTok is just, to me is just the biggest devil out
1: yeah. there today. I I don't want to disparage TikTok because if somebody wants to make my videos go viral, I'll I'll take it. Uh, but I you're right. I mean TikTok is more about I think um, the experience and being part of the community. And so when a book does go viral, people are more excited to get the book in their hands and then make their own video and then talk about the book and be a part of the moment. Um, kind of like the Barbie movie. You know, everybody wants to dress up in pink and go see the Barbie movie for those few weeks that it was the flavor. And then it moves on and and then it's done. And that's really not who generally. Um, I mean, absolutely buy my books. but generally, that's not the kind of fan uh, that reads fantasy. Fantasy fans um, tend to be a little less about flavor of the day and more about um, what are this author's, you know, why why should i care about this world and what's the hook and um how much good world building building am i getting for my time and my money um so you're right fantasy is not a big genre urban fantasy either uh on on things like tiktok it's more about um finding the more thoughtful i guess readers Um, And there's not really a platform for that social media wise. So word of mouth is really powerful. Reddit, our fantasy is really powerful for fantasy. Right.
2: I wanted to ask a bit about your books, uh, Mr. Erickson, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, So (laughs) again, I've only read the first volume of resident files and the first volume Mm -hmm. of rivers of London so I'm not sure whether uh, how exactly it goes but I believe uh, it gradually develops into bigger and bigger arcs. so that while book one can be read on its own Mm -hmm. maybe book five or six you would have to read the previous ones and so on and so forth Uh, when you start writing your uh, series was it more uh, episodic or is it a story is it one story told in many parts?
1: So um it both things are true um in this one for my series because I hate cliffhangers I just it's mm. to me it's such a cheap ploy to put a cliffhanger at the end of a book and make people read the next book I mean they sell way more books than I do probably but i just don't like it um and so i make each book uh, ha- it has a satisfying resolution at the end so if you want to bail at the end of that book you can and you will have had a satisfying story um and that's just a personal preference for me um cliffhangers aren't inherently bad i just personally don't like them um but they're also not episodic um because they uh, have a pretty substantial arc behind them that starts right away in book one. Um, and I originally planned it as a 10 book series. And so mm. I'm getting close to about halfway through now. And it's just, it just keeps going. So um, <laughs> for me, that's the best marriage of getting somebody to go on to the next book, but also not not trapping them into reading the next one.
2: I I wanted to ask a bit. Um, in fantasy, we have uh, different approaches by, uh, by uh, authors. So one is, uh, though yours is not exactly the same, but one is where people write. They create a particular secondary world, and they write only in that world for many, many volumes. Mm. Uh, we can say Malazan or Wheel of Time or Sanderson's Cosmere. Um, And the other one is again. (laughs) I think this is going to be a recurring theme. Maybe we can title this the Gaiman episode, uh, (laughs) where uh, I literally I think for Neil Gaiman the question, "Am I going to like a Neil Gaiman novel?" You have to try. One has to try each one and see, because Mm -hmm. he can dabble with whatever he likes, and somehow it it it, uh, works uh, for so many readers. So uh, I wanted to ask. urban fantasy sort of maybe it gives you a little bit of that leeway to dabble in both so uh you have this world and you have this setting and these characters this cast perhaps whom we are connected to but also you can explore different mythologies or maybe uh different histories so maybe just a bit your thoughts on that
1: yeah yeah i um again i kind of went for the best of both worlds scenario on that one because um, some urban fantasies take themselves really seriously uh, and really try to stick to some hard magical rules um, and I don't I don't really mess around with that my books are a little more ridiculous and so I can have uh, you know I can have them go into a real world location or to just a different plane of existence and then that allows you to really play with um, kind of the the trope expectations like the genre expectations where you can do things that normally wouldn't occur in an urban fantasy um, and have settings that normally wouldn't occur you know in a, in a city um, and and then that way you get to play in those worlds too you can kind of have both um, so yeah I think most urban fantasy likes to stick to the expectations and the tropes because it sells the best but I just I just write whatever feels fun at the time
3: Was, was the choice of... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 go ahead, Parvita. Um,
2: I I was going to say it's uh, very inspiring to hear uh, from authors that, you know, we, I mean, it is possible to write to market, but ultimately in terms of longevity or in terms of being able to sustain uh, literary tradition, it is more important to follow one's vision. It's, mm-hmm.
1: uh,
2: I mean, I guess it's, inspirational for me because it's not just restricted to writing but to in general anything so just thank you for that message
1: yeah no i i think that people who write to market um are totally valid it's a smart idea it's a it's a good strategy to be able to make a living as an author if you study the trends and you you write to that but um it's not like mentally, emotionally sustainable for me if I don't love what I'm doing while I'm doing it. Um, and I, I think, I don't know, but I suspect that, um, you can do it for longer if you're genuinely in love with the story you're writing and it's not just, uh, you know, the tropes you read about and that's just a personal thing. Um, but yeah, it is possible. You can build a career on doing the thing you love. Um, Sometimes it's harder and sometimes it takes longer to convince people to, you know, take a look. But, um, you know, it's possible.
3: I was just going to ask about your choice of your setting being the real world because increasingly there is less fantasy in Mm. fantasy (laughs) and people like Joe McCrombie, people like Scott Mm. Lynch even though they're writing fantasy, it's very obvious that their their the world setting, it is just our world where all they're doing is changing yeah. the name of of places, you know. Um, Abercrombie, you know, it is very much Middle Ages, yeah. England and the Scandinavian countries and Scotland, same mm-hmm. story. So what what was your thought process to decide to stick to, you know, uh, real-world Lincoln-Nebraska as opposed to call it Townsville-in-whatever and still be Lincoln-Nebraska in everything but name?
1: Yeah, I, I think that goes back to kind of having the the pros and cons. You know, when you have a secondary world, you can fudge some of the history details. You know, you can set it in what is effectively... Uh, you know, 15th century England or, or whatever, whatever you want to do. Um, and then you can fudge some of the historical deals and you, uh, details and you always have the out of, hey, this is a fantasy, you know, just because, just because I didn't exactly follow. Uh, this is, this is a fantasy that I'm making up. Um, and so they're, they're getting the benefit of having all that to draw from. Uh, where you can just look up in a history book and say, "Oh yeah, War of the Roses." Okay, I can I can pull some pull some things from this and use that as inspiration. Um, but then they get to play with the the magic. Um, I it, to me it came down more to um, having that foundation of the existing world. Um, and so I, as a new writer just starting out, I didn't have to burden myself with the additional responsibility of also uh, creating an entire history. Um, because it's, it's really important to me, um, to, to get that right. If, if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to build a mythology or a history or a pantheon of gods, um, I have to know everything about them. Even if I'm only putting the top 10% of those details in the book, I need to be an expert on that subject, which is a lot of time. And so not only am I learning how to write for the first time and learning how to market my books for the first time, but I'm also, you know, developing a, a, an elven language or whatever, you know, I'm trying to be Tolkien um, because I just demand that of myself. And so to lay off the stress a little bit, putting it in a modern world made it so I could just be free to play inside the world rather than having to build it from the ground up.
3: Isn't that an unnecessary pressure? The belief that to create a secondary world... you Because I think people sometimes forget Mm. who Tolkien was as a person. First and foremost, he was an Oxford scholar who translated the great Viking sagas into English before writing Lord of the Rings. He wasn't someone that went to... University to study creative writing and then gave it a shot. He, you know, he was a proper university professor in one of the most prestigious humanities universities in the world. So I think, with all due respect, a lot of people pay in comparison yeah. to Tolkien.
1: No, you're exactly right. It, it is a completely unrealistic, unreasonable expectation to have for yourself as an author to, to try and do any of that. Um, and I just, I, I can't get past it just on a personal level. um, I feel for just for me, I feel a responsibility to know the answer to those questions. Um, There's the, uh, so Gary Larson does the Farside comics. um, And he had this thing called cow tools in one of the comics. And it's this, it's this idea that if you put these weird shapes on the on the table and then one handsaw people will assume all those weird shapes are also tools that have real functions right because there's a handsaw there and for some reason all those other tools that he just labeled cow tools they must do something and so usually the author trick is to name one real thing one real color you know viridian or something and then and then you can say like do. And people will assume that must be a color. I have no idea what it is, but it sounds awesome. It's got to be a color because the first one he said is a real color. Or, or like the Star Trek does that too, where they'll name you know Mozart, Beethoven, and then Glibson Five. It, you know, it, it gives it credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can absolutely use that trick, and you should use that trick in your book rather than building out an entire history use a few things that have truth and then use some cow tools in the background to make it seem bigger than it actually is I just personally am a perfectionist and so what happens to me is I'll start writing those cow tools and then I'll be like wait a minute but what are they really <laughs> and, and then I, I fall down a rabbit hole so it's just it's just knowing my own limitations and and working around them <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Parmita,
0: do you have a question?
2: Uh, I do. Uh, I was thinking a bit uh, about uh, what you said in the beginning, Mr. Erickson, that you love to talk about books. And I thought of uh, another thing that you said, where you said that uh, I exclusively don my reader hat when I go into Goodreads. I try to don Mm -hmm. my reader hat. So I sort of thought I will ask one question for your author hat. And one question for your reader hat. <laughs> so the question for your author hat is: You mentioned some of your favorite works, like *Lord of the Rings*, *A Song of Ice and Fire*, *American Gods*, *The Prophet*, mm-hmm. by Khalil Gibran, which I also love a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a work or maybe some works which you, as an author, you read or you remember reading, which made you feel, "I'm never going to be able to write like that. This is this is this is majestic. Yeah. This is." Uh, far beyond and then i will ask the question for the reader had but first this question
1: yeah my answer to that is yeah, maybe some people will think it's weird but um i don't think it's weird and it's it's terry pratchett um oh. i have never i have never read anybody who can s- who can sound so silly and be so smart at the same time and you you read the book on the surface and you go this is a fun funny story and then he'll catch you and say something so unbelievably profound from in in the voice of a you know in the voice of a a golem or something um or a dwarf you know that is just a casual mention Uh, i the 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 um the popular meme about um buying cheap boots right that's from that's from terry pratchett uh where cheap boots are more expensive than expensive boots and that's like that's like the illustration of poverty um and he can do that all day long every one of his books has that in it and yet when people think of him He's a fun, funny guy who is, you know, just writes fun books. Little, tiny, thin little books. And I will never, ever, nobody, nobody is ever going to come close to what that guy could do.
3: Isn't, isn't he the most under... In the UK, he's probably the most beloved yeah. writer ever. I think mm. the, BBC, the BBC did a whole of, all, of the, like, the hundred best novels of all time. And he, him and Dickens are like the same amount yeah. of novels. There, like he's, just, you know, he's on that level. But I think outside of that, generally he's underrated, underappreciated, or yeah. underrated. And I, I suffered from that because I saw those book covers <laughs> when I first moved yeah. to the UK. I was like, no, no, I take my fantasy seriously. Yeah. I, I, th- this is not for me. And then I fell down the Discord yeah. rabbit hole. And, and I think it's, it is yeah. one of the gems I think, uh, of, of the fantasy
1: the first book um color of magic is maybe where maybe where the problem is because he wrote it more to market and then once he was able to cut loose and be himself that's when the books really take off and so color of magic yeah probably isn't the best place to start but if you start with mort or something boy he's just incredible so yeah as an author that's the one that i read that and i say it doesn't matter. I will never, I'll never be able to achieve that.
3: Never use a foot. Never use a foot. Uh, yeah,
1: now. yeah, <laughs> exactly.
2: Should Should I ask the question for sorry, the phone. reader hat now?
3: Oh on, sorry, boy,
1: sorry. it's it's probably the same answer because. Um,
2: no, no, it's, it's it's probably it might be the same answer, but uh, I was going to say. I mean, this is, and I'm responsible for this partly, is that we spent quite a bit of time talking about pigeonholing books into genres, and a lot mm-hmm. of it is helpful for booksellers and for readers like us. We like a book like this, the genre label helps us. But um, I was going to ask as a reader, have you ever read a book, especially if it's uh, speculative fiction in science fiction or fantasy or a series or anything within SFS that made you wish, I wish... I mean this is far beyond any genre label this is this is universal world literature this is above any kind of uh pigeonholing
1: yeah um that one maybe american gods for me for that one um i i remember reading it and i had never heard of neil gaiman before that and i texted my friends and said this they might if it weren't for some of the content they could teach this in literature classes this mm. is it's just the story is constructed so beautifully um but it's it is urban fantasy it is um I, I i think it unfairly gets labeled as um just urban fantasy because i think there's it says more profound things uh about faith and belief and and like the human condition then um then it gets credit for and i think it's one of those that could be mainstream you know it's it is mainstream with the the showtime series and everything but as a book it could be on everybody's shelf um as long as you're down with you know some kind of crazy gory stuff sometimes Um,
2: I was just about to say incomprehensible stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to be okay with
1: getting your mind blown a little bit occasionally and getting grossed out, but, uh, that's part of, that's part of life sometimes. So at least for me, I'm sure there's way better answers to that question, but that's the first one that popped in my head.
2: Thank you. Uh, with your permission, I would like to ask the other panelists, please. Uh, with your reader hat is there a book that or series that you have read in fantasy or science fiction which is above any kind of genre label which is just uh, it's just a great it's just great literature for you uh, so Steve and Jose maybe
0: go ahead Jose oh, uh,
3: I, I, I think we've t- no I, I think we've touched on it I, th- I think you know Josh almost made me tear up when he mentioned this world I think this world is such a unique thing. It's like nothing I've read before, mm. and I think it will be like nothing I will ever read again, because as soon as someone tries to do it, it's gonna go, oh, you're trying to pull a Pratchett here. He was so unique, um, you know, and he he had a deep knowledge of the fantasy tropes and the fantasy genre, and he subverted them all. In a, in a you know, you thought that you were going with the boy that would be king from a humble origin and he rejects the crown and he decides to remain a a city watchman, isn't it? And um, and he did that throughout you know, monstrous oh, yeah. regiment the, the woman pretending to be a man we've seen that in movies we've seen that in theater plays turns out every single person in that regiment was a woman pretending to be a man and no one knew and it's just you, you can't. You, no one can ever repeat something like that. Everyone else, they write fantasy, they write within the relative confines of the genre, but something so unique and so mm-hmm. special. I don't think I'll ever read something like that again. I wish I could read it all again for the first time.
0: You gotta make you want to read Discworld oh. over here.
1: Oh. oh man, it's so yeah. good.
0: Maybe I'll have to start it. I already have. Uh, what was the book you mentioned earlier? We said the uh, color of magic. <laughs> um, no! Um, what was the book? Uh, Department of Truth I already have that. In oh, oh, yeah. That yeah. <laughs> yeah, influence. Um, I can't really think of anything that really stood out. That I think the only thing that comes to mind is maybe I don't. Parmit is not a fan, but the second uh, uh, the second apocalypse is the only thing I think of. Maybe um, maybe that, but I'm not sure that it's. Not have read anything that stands out too much but that's the only thing that comes to mind
3: i guess i could say but maybe i don't know if it's fantasy but the whole hp lovecraft mm-hmm. thing you know everything he again he created something so unique and so different from what was the horror genre yeah. at the time he just took horror in a brand new direction and so many people have added to it, have developed it, have built on it. You uh, talk about cornerstones of of writing. You you got Lovecraft, Tolkien, Pratchett. Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: definitely. So, Josh, I'm, I'm going I know I promised you not to not to hit you with any hard questions, but <laughs> it's. Uh, I have to ask since you're a fan of a, of a song of ice and fire, will that series ever be finished? Oh man, in your opinion?
1: I mean. Uh, i can't imagine how much pressure he and like patrick rothfuss are under uh with just the curse of success on those Mm. there's just no one human being could come up with a satisfying ending to either of those series anymore it's just every fan theory has been explored and just there's already a lot of pressure to be creative you know and to come up with something interesting and fun And when you're under the radar, like I, you know, my, I, I sell reasonably well. It's not, you know, uh, but I'm nowhere near a household name. Um, so I still have a lot of freedom to go wherever I want with the story, but George R. R. Martin and Rothfuss, they're absolutely painted into the most ridiculous corner because there's just nowhere they could go that will be satisfying and they both know it because they're both smart people so I just I I can't imagine how they would ever finish it unless they write it put it in a safe and say on the day I die you can release this and then nobody can criticize me
0: (laughs) I know Jose has uh, opinions on that one
3: (laughs) I totally disagree with that I totally disagree with that. I think because George Martin has said it himself that if people guess where your story Mm -hmm. is going, it's not because your writing is bad. It's because you've done a good job of planting the seeds Mm -hmm. and dropping the hits and foreshadowing where the story is going. I don't think his issue is that he doesn't... I don't think the issue is people have figured out where the story is going. Therefore, he needs to surprise us Mm -hmm. with something unexpected. I, I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is he's made a lot of money late in life, and he's just like a kid. Oh, in the for toy sure. Shop. <laughs> yeah. He, he bought his own. He bought his own cinema. He bought his own train. Train yeah. with a train. He's now, um, you know, he's the Game of Thrones businessman with all the TV shows and everything, and he's just enjoying yeah. the success and become a businessman. He's not writing yeah. anymore. I think that's his problem. It's not anything to do with the writing. Hmm. He knows where the story is going. When he initially pitched it, it was a three-book series. Mm -hmm. He knew who was going to survive and die at the end and everything. And he cannot have diverged that much from the original story. It is totally money and success and all the distractions that he's got going in his life.
1: Yeah, I can definitely see that. um, Because there is a, a lot to having the hunger, you know, to saying... I not only do I want to write this story but I need to because I need to buy groceries, you know, 6 months from now when <laughs> this is supposed to be released. And so there is a lot uh, to be said for becoming so financially successful so quickly. The motivation to become a successful writer is gone because you did it. Congratulations. But um <clears throat> just from my, you know, from my perspective staring down at a blank page into the fourth book Um, there, you know, there, there is a feeling of like, how, what else can I do to surprise people? And um, nobody's really online talking about my books. So I've got a lot of options, but I think maybe less for George R. R. Martin. I think you're probably right with George R. R. Martin. It's, it's a money situation and he's just doesn't, doesn't have the drive anymore. Story's technically finished. With the tv show whatever however you want to say that turned out um but patrick Rothfuss, i almost i, I want to say in his case it's it's more that he holds himself to a too high a standard and it's easier to go do you know D groups and and charity work and things like that because that's tangible stuff that he can get done today um but when you look at the book and you know that it can't be perfect as perfect as everybody wants it to be you know there's no way you can achieve that that is debilitating man that like that will wreck you so that's just you know from my side
2: Steve you have to permit me <coughs> a long monologue now
1: oh go go for it <laughs> so
2: uh, first of all for point number one huge killer fan moderate huge, such a high fire fan king killer fan to the extent I checked the king killer edit every week so second i'm on high grade hopium and copium which will be uh illustrated by me right now i believe winter is uh, coming and i believe we will hmm. find out what is behind the doors of stone and my prediction for winter right now is 2024 and the prediction for no laughing it can still happen <laughs> and my, prediction for those of Stone is end of 2024, 2025. So um, one thing which I thought of was, just, I mean, I'm, I'm sad about it. I've reread these books a lot of times, especially King Kingkiller. Um, for me, I don't know, like maybe because uh, us, I mean, we all have struggled with things in our lives. I feel that each individual, whether they're an author or not, nobody ne- really knows what one person is going through, even even the people closest to them. And then, I mean, if they have a public persona and their public persona is for all to see, who knows what is actually going on behind the scenes. And this goes for every every person. I mean, even Mr. Erickson, you are a public persona. But nobody actually knows what happens in that creative process that is between you and your uh, your your the paper as you said that is an intensely isolating and a very personal process and uh, I, though, though we might uh, express uh, interest we might express curiosity we might express reverence but i don't think we can ever express 100% true understanding as just a reader so for me i am at that point where i choose to believe that these authors the, mr orfus and mr martin will Try their best to complete their magnum opus because, ultimately, it is about the sustaining power of literature. They do have something special out there. There are lots of people who love it. I believe that if the next installment comes out, there are a lot of people who will say, "All is forgiven. Let us try it." So I, I want to sort of cling on to hope. And I, I, I fully like if you all tell me that I'm on opium, copium, parame, then this is sad. <laughs> I I, I I admit to that, but I sort of want to uh, believe in them, and because of the words and the words they have given me, so that's my monologue. <laughs> <laughs> I I do wonder.
0: I I, I do wonder if if uh, you know if they received Martin's notes for the last season and a half of Game of Thrones, and, and he saw the reaction to it, and he's like. Mm, I don't know. Maybe this is what I was going to do, but maybe I should rethink this. I wonder if he was like back to the drawing board.
2: because:
0: yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, Steve, I don't know whether for you, this is true as a reader, though I know you do not like uh, to know anything about a book when you go in. But for me, it is I mean, the what is somewhat boring. The why is always interesting. Hmm. So I mean, uh, whether the show end and the books end collide or not, I think that the path that we go there, what he says on the way, like one thing which is there in Feast of Crows, I don't think it's much of a spoiler, I will not mention the spoiler part, but there is this character called Brienne who is walking about the land and every place she is and asking a particular question. And as she's asking this particular question, she is seeing the ravages of war and when first time i was like what is happening when i read it and the second time when i read it when one of my friends the purple book firm she actually she said try to think about why the author is doing this like beyond filling words and making a 1200 page book why is the author telling this if it has no plot purpose if it has no plot purpose if it has no character purpose it only can have a theme purpose and that theme is that, okay, you won your wars, you're engaged in your power battles. Look at what has happened to the common people. So somebody who is still in that headspace in book four, in book five, I want to believe that they will bring it back. It is a tremendous, tremendous arc, but I want to keep hope that maybe they will do it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's part of, part of what um, goes wrong in those big series uh, you string out all these tantalizing things, and then you have to try and tie them all together in in a satisfying way. Um, and sometimes when you string those things out, it's just because they're neat, not because you intended for them to go anywhere. But then after the fact, mm. you say, oh, <laughs> I probably should have that go somewhere. And so you're kind of building a railroad as the train is rolling on it, you know? Mm. Um, and I'm sure there are people who are much smarter than me and can plan out those thousands of little threads perfectly from the very beginning. But I suspect most people kind of do it after the fact. And there's Neil Gaiman said um, something, and I'm going to misquote it, but the essence of it is um, the second draft is the act of making look, making it look like the first draft uh, you knew what you were doing. Um, And so You know, in the second draft of the book, you go in and say, "Uh uh-oh, this guy has a knife in his pocket. I better five chapters previously put a knife in his pocket. That way it makes sense for him to have it here. And the same is true for book five or six, where you go back to book one and say, oh boy, I strung this thing out. Now I better make it relevant in book six. And that's Mm. that's a hard thing to do when you've... I mean, you better be an expert on your own lore...
0: it's a lot to keep track of. <laughs> uh, I just noticed that it's the time flew. <laughs> oh yeah. Happened. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, but before we, we wrap up, uh, Josh, I wanted to ask you uh, something. I try and ask all the guests is uh, what was your first job and what did you learn from that experience?
1: Oh boy. My first job was a, a paper boy when such a thing existed. Uh, my, maybe my, my first real job was working at a, a fast food Mexican restaurant. And, um, I think maybe the thing you learn from any retail or food service job is just, um, that you're not the main character of, of the world. (laughs) You know, you, you very quickly realize that everybody's just the main character of their own story. Uh, and Mm. when you're working for minimum wage and, and putting burritos together, um, you have to come to terms with the fact that like, you need to make your own life have meaning. Like nobody's going to hand it to you. Um, If, if you wake up and expect an old man to come out of a portal and give you a quest, like you're going to be disappointed, man. And so (laughs) you have to make it for yourself, whatever that is for you, whatever, whatever that means for you. It doesn't mean you have to go out and find an amazing, fulfilling job, but like find the place in the world that that matters to you and and make it better and do your best and um become you know become that main character in your own story like earn it Uh, because everybody believes that that's who they are so um, retail and and uh, food service deliver that lesson really quickly when you're a young teenager who's only ever experienced the world from you know one one place
0: i love that i love that do you not the main character yeah
1: <laughs> you're, a, you're in a
0: yeah you're a side character yeah awesome i like that but uh before we go uh can you tell everyone who's listening where they can find you and your work
1: yeah my website is uh josh j-o-s-h-e-r-i-k-s-o-n dot com um and uh my books are available on audible and itunes uh for audiobooks and on amazon for ebooks and paperback
0: awesome thank you so much for hanging out with us
1: oh thank you very much this was a lot of fun
0: yeah and uh paramita where can people
2: find you Uh um. I can be found on the page chewing forum. I just want to thank Steve and Jose for uh, letting me be part of the panel, and to Mr. Erickson for so graciously uh, answering so many of my questions. Thank you so much.
0: I told you to look out for her. She's yeah, <laughs> <good job. laughs>
3: and,
0: uh, and Jose, where can people find you?
3: Uh, mostly at um, Jose's Amazing Worlds on YouTube and then on the page Chewing forums as well. And, of course, Steve, as usual, thank you ever so much for having me on. And, Josh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight. Yeah, it's been yeah, great. I'm glad
0: everyone can make it. Yeah. So and t- hope everyone has a great weekend, and we'll see everyone very soon.
3: Great. Bye.